0: Well, hello, church friends. We are so thankful that you have joined us for another online service. Uh, My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have just a couple announcements for you before we get into God's word. Uh, The first one is uh, we find it to be an honor and a privilege to uh, partner with you in prayer. And if you have any prayer requests, it doesn't matter if you attend Agorah Bible Fellowship faithfully or you... Uh, live in Texas or wherever, we want to partner with you in prayer. So you can text your prayer requests to 97,000, 97,000, and we will receive those prayer requests and uh, we will pray for you throughout the week. And so uh, if you don't believe us, go ahead and try it and uh, you'll get a response. And uh, we just really want you to know that we love praying for you. So please send those prayer requests. The second thing is, man, we have a lot going on at our church across all of our adult ministries, our children's ministries, high school, junior high, senior citizens, everything. And we want to make sure that you know where to go to find that information. You can check out our website at agorabible.org or find us on the Church Center app for all of that information. And if you have additional questions, feel free to email us and we will love to get back to you. Well, lastly, man, we are just so thankful for your ongoing faithful giving. Uh, The ministries and the church here cannot operate without faithfulness in that. And we would be so uh, we would be so thankful if you would consider giving a donation. You can do that on our websites under the Give tab or on our Church Center app. And again, we would be so grateful if you would consider a donation. And uh, we're again, we're just so thankful for your ongoing generosity. Well, now let's get into God's Word. Well, thanks,
1: Chris, and greetings, Online Church family. Excited to be with you, just spending some time in God's Word. Just finishing up this series that we've been in, it's really been a powerful one as we've considered some of the more famous, what you'd call meltdowns in scripture, uh, cautionary tales that we can uh, gleam from. And as we're starting the conversation this week, I noticed something, how our, our world works. Our universe has certain, I don't know, what you'd call laws that govern it, things that are in place, things we're all familiar with, such as gravity, such as thermodynamics, such as uh, kind of day-to-day mathematics, how laws work with that, economic laws of supply and demand, and of course, the most important one, your wife is always right. You see, there's, there's laws that kind of govern how this universe works, and what I would suggest is there's also laws that you start to see that are true in the spiritual world, this week, we're going to look at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to discover that there's a, a spiritual law that seems to be on repeat throughout Scripture, and the law is this, pride plus time equals judgment. Again, pride plus time equals judgment. It's confirmed in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud But gives grace to the humble. And Daniel chapter 4, where we'll be looking today, we'll see specifically that God literally opposes this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're going to, just to make the sermon go a lot shorter, we're going to abbreviate his king. I'm going to refer to him as King Neb for the rest of our time together. So King Neb demonstrates cause and effect, but here's the thing, is it's more than just as we notice in God's word, it's more than just the story about King Neb. It's for us to get a, a clearer picture of how our God operates, what he's like. We discover in his meltdown, in King Neb's meltdown, that there's a a God that's pursuing him, that's been chasing after him. In fact, for about 30 years, God has been pursuing, trying to wow, trying to woo King Neb. And unfortunately, he, like so many, somehow missed it. Whether it was Daniel interpreting a, a dream correctly in his life, whether it was him seeing God provide rescue to Daniel in the uh, fiery furnace, either way, somehow, similar to what Romans, Romans one twenty one tells us, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, King Neb saw it, he was exposed to it, but completely missed it. He was entangled in the webs of his own pride right now. So unfortunately, God has to shift to a little different approach in our text today to get King Neb's attention. See, what we discover about our God is he doesn't mind coming with a a heavy smackdown in in order to kind of charge us, in order to alert us to our own confusion about our, our self-sufficiency, whatever it takes to realize our dependence on him. And so he's going to crash into his self-reliance. It's really a, an interesting chapter that we're in. If you're familiar with the story or book of Daniel, chapter four is the only one that Daniel doesn't write we'll see right at the beginning that this is the account of the king. And this, in that day and age, this was the most powerful person on the planet. It was the first time that there was a, a global empire. So the entire known world at the time was underneath one empire with one king, and that was King Neb. But there's a lot for us to learn. Let me pray before we dive into the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to, to gather around your word and for those who are choosing to spend some time to invest, to actually look at this story and try to be teachable. God, I pray that you'd honor them for that commitment even now, that you would uh, enter into this time, that there'd be something, a, a nugget or a reminder, whatever you want to do, God, in this time, we invite that in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 4 in Daniel. This is what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon, should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. All right, we'll pause there. Clearly, he's, King Neb is passionate to share. You can tell something's happened in his life that he's wanting to get this testimony out, and he's addressing it to the all the people that dwell on the earth. So this is a letter, a testimony letter to everyone on the planet. He's describing, he starts by describing his situation. couple words that jump out at me. The first one is the word ease. He was in a, a place where everything was comfortable for him. And you think, to, when I was hearing that word, it made me think of, of David before his fall with Bathsheba. A lot of times we're the most vulnerable when we're at ease, when our guard isn't up, describes him as, He describes himself as prospering, Is probably an understatement of that day and age. This king would have had the most lavish experiences. Anything he wanted, he had access to as literally the ruler of the known world. It's interesting if you think about it, whenever you're feeling pretty good about yourself, that's when we tend to be, as I mentioned, the most vulnerable. When we think we're at ease, when we think we're on top of the world, I heard a story of Muhammad Ali at his prime being on an airplane and a stewardess trying to explain that he needed to put a seatbelt on just like everybody else. His response to the the stewardess was saying, hey, listen, Superman don't need no seatbelt. It's interesting to hear her response. She said, well, Superman don't need no plane, so buckle up. It's a good reminder, doesn't matter who you think you are, what position you think you are, we're all desperately dependent on God, whether we see it or whether we don't. And it sure seems in this time period, even at the top of his game, at the height of his popularity, authority, his kingdom, he was not at a place where he's acknowledging God This is right when God chooses then to enter in to shake things up. Think about us as a culture, as a people. Whenever you're at a place of prosperity, whenever you're at a place of at the top of your game, that's when God often has to do things to get your attention. What does God do to break into his world? He breaks in with a kind of a a subtle attempt. It's not with a lightning. It's not with a thunder. Instead, it comes in the form of a dream. And in this dream about a, a, a tree, he's perplexed, trying to make sense. The reason we're told in the text that it scared him, we'll discover, is that in the dream, the mighty one or the holy one as described comes in and chops down this towering tree. It refers to in the in the dream, it refers to him as becoming this tree that became a, a stump, refers to it as becoming like an animal eating grass. It uses the word him, which is uh, probably a, a a sign that it's not just talking about a, a physical tree. So what does the king decide to do? He requires, it says that he makes a decree that all of the wise men need to come immediately and help him make sense out of this perplexing, dream. It's interesting in verses seven through 18, we see the whole chaos of all the wise men of, the, of Babylon coming and trying to solve it They're, in their foolishness. They have no answer. In fact, all of them are stumped, no pun intended. But in this opportunity, this is where God brings and elevates Daniel as the one that's going to provide the answer Interesting, though, how that works so often, even when we know that the people are not going to give good counsel, we have a tendency to go to all the wrong places for counsel whether it's internet, whether it's self-help stuff, whether it's uh, counselors that we know aren't following the Lord. Man, if we just started with the, the person of God, going to the person that's rooted and grounded in God's word, what he learns and discovers is that's the only place that you're going to find truth. Verse 19, we see as we jump ahead, how it plays out when he finally lands on Daniel. Verse 19, then Daniel... Whose name is Belteshazzar was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. All right. Now I know that was a lot of text to read and a lot to cover, but basically I think important details are unpacked there. What's happening is after the dream, we discover that Daniel, as you would imagine, is a little bit hesitant to share the interpretation of this dream. He says that he leaves perplexed because it was like, as you would imagine, you're like, I don't want to tell the king. You tell him. I don't want to explain this because it's literally the most powerful man in the world. You're about to tell him the interpretation that he's not necessarily going to want to hear. We see genuine c- compassion from Daniel where he says, man, I, I wish that this was for your enemies, but instead he explains, it is you that we're talking about. The, the stump that's left is a, becomes a, like a, an oxen that literally is going to be living off of the ground, eating like a, confused that he's an oxen, eating the grass, having dew, in other words, sleeping and living outside, uh, living off the land. It's kind of a, a crazy description You think about it and the lasting effect of that would be seven years, but it tells him that his kingdom would remain on the other side of this seven years if he acknowledges God. It's kind of an interesting dream for him to have encountered or you imagine as you're hearing Daniel talk, there would have been a, a lump in your throat as you're like, whoa, what is happening? He's seen God in the past fulfill exactly what he said he's going to do. He's seen his power demonstrated in the protection of Daniel. Now he sees that until he realizes that heaven rules, it's not until then will his kingdom be returned to him. This is a a great warning if you think about it for anyone, not just kings, not just just those in, in positions of power, but anyone that's enamored with their own accomplishments thinking that their position and their possessions are solely a result of their own efforts it's a great reminder of who rules and reigns over all of this continue in the text in verse 27 Daniel shows continued compassion on him. why is this why would i say that this is compassion before we read that why would i say that this is compassion the reason this is compassion If you think about it, man, God would rather bring us to a place of humility, bring us to our knees, bring us to the reality that we desperately need him rather than spending an eternity separated from him in consequence, in punishment. So here he explains, he gives a a, a final warning, warning in verse 27. Therefore, in other words, because of this, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Look what he tells them to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and in your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. We'll pause there. This is the final Chance and you think about it. He's pleading with them. Man, that's a a pretty risky thing. Think about it. He's already confronting the king about his pride, but he's suggesting a way to kind of skip some of the consequence. Man, please turn from your wicked ways. Here's the invitation for every single one of us. That's the gospel message. Every single one of us has this opportunity to repent and to turn and to redirect the ship. He tells them some uh, important things. He tells them to break off your sins. I think that's a interesting choice of words there because a, a lot of times I think we think it can be reduce your sins or, or, or cut back a little bit. But here's the thing is if you're going to see victory in areas of, of oppression in your life, areas of sin in your life, you, there's certain things that need to be broken off. You need to just cut ties. You can't have any part of it any longer explains him to cut off things. But here's the thing I found interesting in this section. He doesn't just tell them to stop doing wrong, but he tells them it's kind of a replacement idea to start doing right. Not just, not just sitting in the corner and resisting. I'm not gonna do anything bad, but redirecting, using our energy and our affection towards things that matter. And what does he describe as something that matters? What does right living look like? Describes it as showing mercy to the oppressed. Interesting concept for this wealthy, successful king ruling overall. We don't know exactly what's going on in this kingdom, but I imagine some of his successes have been born on the backs of others under oppression. And much like any other world dominant leader in any period of time, that's often how the success is arrived upon. And so he's calling him to live differently. He's saying, you need to start caring for the oppressed. In other words, be a benevolent king. Use your power for good is the suggestion on the table. It's interesting to see that as an opportunity for us to even ask ourselves that same question. How do I show mercy to the oppressed? What do I do to go out of my way to meet the needs for maybe somebody that's struggling I like what Beth Moore says. She says, sitting in luxury without concern for the oppressed shows we've been corrupted by our Babylon. Interesting thought, interesting that out of all the things that he can point to, it's for him to stop sinning and start focusing on caring for those in need. But what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from doing that so often is our pride. So often we don't want to get dirty. We don't want to roll up our sleeves. In this this instance, the king puts in his pride, puts our God to the test because there's no sign that he repents. There's no sign that he turns. There's no sign of change. Basically, he's saying, let's see if God's going to do what he says he's going to do. In verse 28, we see that God did exactly what he warned. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While... immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. What in the world? What is happening here? This is, uh, I don't know, one of the most unbelievable stories found in scripture, in my opinion, at least a portrayal of someone being brought from the highest peak to the lowest low. Basically, what you see is God gave him plenty of opportunity. Notice in the beginning, it says all this came about to King Neb at the end of how much time? It says at the end of 12 months. So he gives, after Daniel's warning, he gives him a full year A full year to contemplate what he had seen, what he had heard, what what was uh, the caution given against him, the interpretation that was extended to him. He has twelve months to decide what to do with it. It's interesting. After those twelve months, you see nothing has changed in King Neb's heart. You see, he's still obsessed he starts referring to I've built my mighty power for the glory of my majesty that was the catalyst his prideful thinking expressed verbally was the catalyst for God's action God's like all right that's it I can't take it anymore this this guy has gotten way too big for his britches and I need to remind him of who the king is Interesting, we're told that God responds immediately. Look what it says. While the words were still in the king's mouth, basically while he hadn't even gotten finished bragging about all of his accomplishments before the Lord started to interrupt, to break in, we're told that the voice from heaven came. Here's the thing that's important to understand. This wasn't just didn't just play itself out without some kind of a explanation. Literally a rumbling voice from heaven. We don't know who all heard that voice, but I'm guessing that it wasn't a faint voice. It was a God demonstrating his power and who's in control tells him and explains to him some critical things that clearly hadn't sunk in. He wanted to make sure that he knew who the one is that decides and determines who rules and reigns in this earth. I was thinking about that as so many of us stress about uh, votes, about uh, politics, about political leaders, who's in power, who's not in power, who we wish was in power, who we wish wasn't in power, all of that stuff. And for us to be brought back to the reminder of what we see in the text here is the only people that are in positions of authority is because God has allowed them to be there. It may be a consequence. It may be a uh, a reward. It can take all kinds of looks. It might just be him accomplishing a purpose with a group of people. But either way, in this context, we see that he takes somebody that was uh, on the top of his game and brings him low most extensive description of insanity found in anywhere in scripture. It's this type of insanity that this man is confused and thinking he's literally an ox. There's actually terms for this. There's zoanthropy where someone acts like an animal, but the specific term for this is boanthropy. It's a psychological disorder where someone actually believes they're a cow. That's what's happening here is he's under the delusion, no no longer thinking that he's a man. It's interesting to see how often archaeological finds discover things that support scripture. And in the Babylon, as they've uncovered and discovered more and more ancient uh, uh, scripts, different things written, different uh, characters, different things from that time period, they realized that there was a seven-year gap where the king was somehow outside of the kingdom. And they, they, for whatever reason, maybe they heard God's voice, for whatever reason, his kingdom was saved for him. Maybe because everybody that knew what took place is like, I'm not going to be king. Are you going to be king? No, I'm not going to be king. I wouldn't want to be king when you're dealing with a God that's imposing his justice. So for seven long years, Neb experienced the consequence of his pride. So much so, it describes him getting long hair for of his nails, like the claws of an eagle, kind of a crazy description, eating grass. What in the world is going on? After those seven years, verse 34, we'll keep moving. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, this is him telling the story. Can you imagine? Lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are, according, are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Quite the testimony explanation there. So we're, we're told exactly how this plays out. There's an indication of him starting to coming back. Do you see what, what actually brings him back? It says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. It was in this wilderness of insanity that finally brought Neb to his senses. He's on his knees. He finally looks up. He's pro- finally brought back. It's encouraging to see so we're in this conversation about mental health stuff that nobody's beyond God's reach. Nobody's beyond his care. There's nobody beyond his compassion, his ability to restore, to make new. He's like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you out of this pit and I'm gonna elevate you back. But it starts when we actually look to heaven. When we turn our eyes to him, then he's like, all right, now I can do something here. Now I can, now I can work. The language changes Look at some of the terms that he used. He says, I've blessed the most high and praised and honored him. Do you see the difference there? Who was he praising and honoring before? Before it was about my kingdom and my accomplishments. Now it's like, man, it's all about him. It's all about the most high. You see, all of a sudden he recognizes his position in all of this. There's something about seven years living like a cow that changes the lens in which you see things. He was reestablished. It's kind of cool to see that there's submission, but there's also restoration, that he brought him back to a place of, of authority, to a position of leadership, but a different mindset. Now all of a sudden he re- realizes his dominion is everlasting. He realizes the how temporary his spot as king is going to be. Basically, he ends with this conclusion. You can read it again. It says, he says, all his works are right and his ways are just. In other words, he's not questioning his authority, his decision. He's like, I can't question him. It's not me for to question. And look at the last thing he says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Talk about somebody that's speaking from experience. He's like, listen, I, if there's anybody that knows, what it looks like to walk in pride and be humbled, it is me. It is me that recognizes this and understands. And you see a changed man all of a sudden praising the God on high. It's a complete surrender and now dependence on God. And if you think about it, that's where he's wanting to bring every single one of us. And as I said at the beginning, he doesn't mind bringing us to our knees in order for us To finally look up. I want to leave us with just a couple lessons on how we combat pride, because pride can be a a sneaky thing. It kind of comes in and you're like, man, I didn't even realize all these areas of pride. I I think a, a starting point, this is always the starting point with any area of ongoing habitual sin in our life. It starts with confession, to acknowledge, to confess my pride. Any area that you see sneaking in where you think that you're maybe greater than you are, If you're having trouble trying to identify what those areas of pride are, maybe a spouse might be willing to help you. Try that over uh, your dinner table next time, asking someone that you're close with, hey, where do you see signs of pride in my life? I'm guessing they could pull out a list from their pocket. I think another thing is a suggestion for kind of seeing or combating and having victory over pride is also regularly verbalizing your dependence on God. You see, what was the catalyst for God to finally strike down King Neb was him vocalizing and verbalizing his own dependence on self. What is a kind of a counterbalance to that is when we regularly verbalize our dependence on our mighty God. I was watching a a, a documentary on Netflix about Ben Carson. Maybe you've heard of him before, a politician, but also has a background in the medical world. It's interesting to see him describe, even before every single surgery, he would take time to pray, that God would guide his hands, that God would direct, that God would lead. It's kind of an interesting mindset for us to look for opportunities To verbalize, prayer is one of those opportunities or or one of the things that you can just say before you're going into into something that's a heavy weight on you. God, I need you for this. Uh, uh, Rescue me from this or protect me from this. Man, vocalizing it, there's something that happens when it actually comes out of our mouth and our ears hear it. It has a tendency to make its way to our heart. The third one I would suggest is choosing to humble yourself regularly. How is that? I think a couple things that helps with that for, for choosing to humble yourself regularly. I think some things that help with that is be a person that's regularly willing to admit when you've blown it. Hey, listen, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. Period. Not with the, so often we want to follow that with an excuse of 10 reasons why we did it, but no, just leave it at that. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And reminders of we're not perfect, we're in need of grace, we're constantly dependent on his mercies extended to us. Just some different ways, a couple other practical ways to uh, humble yourself is look to be a student, be teachable, don't don't be a a know-it-all, Look to learn from people. I think that helps with humility. I think another thing that helps with humility, as we've seen uh, demonstrated here, is looking for opportunities to serve. Maybe somebody that's less fortunate. It's a a good reminder of man. I could have. I could have been there with one change of a decision. Man, I could have been there with one different life circumstance. I think serving others is another wonderful way to humble yourself. You think about it, Jesus was the perfect demonstration of humility. First off, coming off of the, th- out of the throne room of heaven to come down to be amongst us, to become a, a, a meager man, and then to allow himself to be hung on a cruel cross that was intended for sinners, for criminals. Like, what in the world? What kind of humility is demonstrated in that? I think another way that his humility was demonstrated to us, I think it's not that often pointed to, I've mentioned it before the fact that we have a God that's willing to take us even when we come to him as a last resort. All right, I've tried everything else that life has to offer. All right, God, I'll take you. I'll take your grace. I'll take your mercy. I'll finally come to you after I've tried everything else that the world has offered. And guess what our God does? Yes, I'll take you. He embraces us with open arms. He demonstrates humility so that we can implement it and model it in our life. So what do we learn about God's response to pride? Kind of the thing that I started with in our sermon. Pride plus time equals judgment. So my question for us, what will he have to do to get your attention? What will he have to do to keep your attention? Hopefully, it's just this sermon. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this example and reminder of how easily we can get into thinking that the good things in our life, the stuff that we have, the things that have been entrusted to us, that they somehow came from self, from my efforts, from my work, from my independent work from God. And what a great reminder of who actually is the one that bestows blessing on each of us You determine who's in charge, who's not in charge. You determine all of these things. My prayer is that we would be able to skip some of that coming down to one knee and learn about humility the the easy way from a lesson like this, God, I pray. I pray for myself as well, that this is be a, a teachable moment even in my own life on this subject. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We praise you as the one living true God. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.